Our Bible reading this morning is from 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 15 and 26 and 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The word of the Lord. Earlier this week, President Biden gave a rare address uh, from the Oval Office about the wars in Israel and in Ukraine. And uh, I wonder if you noticed something in this speech. Uh, he was very deliberate to point out uh, something that he had done, actually two things. 
First, uh, that he had flown into the Tel Aviv airport, uh, despite the, the threat of Hamas uh, rocket attacks, in order to show his support for Israel. And second, he also mentioned uh, that earlier this year, when he traveled to Ukraine, uh, he became the first U.S. president to visit a war zone not under the control of the United States military. You know, and it, you can understand why he would, he would mention these things. This is what we expect uh, from a leader. Uh, in, the, in the same way, uh, President Zelensky of, of Ukraine captured the imagination of the world at the beginning of the war there when he refused to leave Kyiv uh, in the face of Russia's approaching army. This is what we expect leaders to do, right? In our text today, in 2 Samuel 11, this is the first sign that something has gone horribly wrong in David's life. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. David is not at the front. He's not with the troops. He's comfortably at home in his palace uh, while his people are, are out fighting hard battles. Something has gone wrong. He's a king who no longer knows what it means to be the king. And everything that, that follows in this story flows from this loss of purpose and identity. Frederick Buchner once said, lust is the craving for salt of a person who is dying of thirst. David no longer knows who he is supposed to be and so he goes out looking for something to satisfy him. He is no longer the protector of his people. So his people become his prey. In verse 2, we find him getting up from his couch after what seems to be another long afternoon of lounging around. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. There, there are two details here I, I want to make sure you notice. First is uh, the description of David walking. And, and the word that's used here uh, to describe his walking in Hebrew is, is unusual. It's, it's a specific form of the Hebrew verb to walk, the, the hitpile, that in this context means to walk back and forth. Uh, the, the verb is used elsewhere to describe the way a lion prowls, walking back and forth in Ezekiel chapter 19. Uh, the same word is used to describe Satan in the book of Job in chapter 1, uh, verse 7, uh, where Satan is described as walking up and down the earth in judgment. It's, it's a hint of, of this that describes David's prowling walk 
And there's something about the way he walks in this late afternoon that captures the condition of his spirit. The second detail we need to notice is that he's on the rooftop here. It's mentioned twice that he's on the roof. It happened when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The palace would have been the highest point in the city, and this is what allowed uh, him to look down on his subjects and, and their rooftops. Uh, anyone else on their roofs would have you know, probably assumed that they had privacy. Uh, but David looks down on them all, and he's become more like a, a pagan king surveying his domain uh, than uh, a man after God's own heart, as he's called earlier in the story. In fact, we find a very similar image in the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel uh, chapter 4, where the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, is also walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And as he walked, he looked over the city and he said to himself, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This is what pagan kings do. And it's this mindset, this condition, that leads David uh, into his next steps. To take Bathsheba, only to use her and, and discard her. There's no indication in this story at all that there is anything mutual about the relationship between David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is only a commoner. And not only that, almost definitely a foreigner, like her husband, uh, Uriah the Hittite. David's action is an abuse of power at, at its most raw. And, and, and Bathsheba would have had no say in what transpired between them. Many of you know there's a long history of, of referring to this story as David's adultery. Uh, but that gets it completely wrong. The biblical author here was not trying to cover up for David, and neither should we. And we can say without equivocation that David is totally responsible for what transpires here. And it's, and it's horrible, and, it, and it's wrong. And this is, in fact, the point of the story. At every step, David descends to a greater depth of ruin and devastation. Bathsheba is pregnant, and so he must protect his honor, of course, and, and cover it up. And when Uriah fails to cooperate by taking some R&R at home, David will simply have him put to death. But the, the key moment I want to draw your attention to is in verse 11, when, when David asks Uriah why he slept outside the palace and didn't go home. Listen to what Uriah the Hittite uh, says. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? 
as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Consider this. This this Hittite soldier has more concern for the ark of God and for the nation and for its people than the king, David. David has lost a vision for himself and his role as the king, as the leader. He's lost a vision for for other people and uh, how they should have been under his care and protection. But he's also lost a vision for for God himself as as a living reality in his life and in the life of his people. And as a result, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, David has broken at least four of the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment against murder, the Seventh Commandment against adultery, the Ninth Commandment commandment against false testimony, and the Tenth Commandment against coveting one's neighbor's wife. You know, when I first started reading the Bible, I did not expect to find stories like this about the heroes of the faith. Why is this in the Bible? What, what, is, what is going on here? Listen to how the theologian Walter Brueggemann describes this chapter. The plot in its telling is not complex or complicated, yet we dare not treat the narrative as simple. We must be awestruck that we have such a rendering of life before us. We may wonder what made this artistic achievement possible or what made this terrible disclosure necessary. The writer has cut very, very deep into the strange web of foolishness, fear, and fidelity that comprises the human map. This narrative is more than we want to know about David and more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. By bringing us to this point in the life of David, by telling the story in this way, by, by not covering up for him, as must have been you know, an enormous temptation and pressure of the, of the context of the society in which this was written, the, the scriptures here help us to understand not just David, but, but ourselves. Because isn't it true that we too are just as capable of losing a vision for our place in the world. And when we lose ourselves, we're, we're also capable of hurting others in the worst possible ways. But to see this requires that we see and, and understand the reality of what people can be like and what human beings are like, not just as amazing, creative, beautiful individuals, which, which you all are, but also as broken and fallen people who lose our way. David shows us that the source of our deepest problems and the problems in our world is not just our outward behaviors, but that there's something woven in deeply to the human condition, to the fallen human condition. That's not enough to just say that David must have been depressed, Or maybe he had an addiction problem that led him to make these bad decisions. But that there is something warped and wrong that would lead 
him to this point in his life. A few years ago, uh, there was an essay published in the New York Times in 2019 uh, entitled Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. And the author, Julia Shears, uh, uh, wrote a memoir called Jesus Land. And she was raised in a, a Christian home. But as she grew up, she discovered that she, she really didn't like this traditional Christian idea of sin. And she found it oppressive and fearful. And in her article, she explains how she vowed to raise her children according to her own moral code in a secular way and never, ever talk about sin. But she still wanted her children to be good and, you know, moral people. So she wrote about uh, their upbringing in this way. She says, Just as my parents' approach to imparting their values was shaped by an effort to avoid the sins they feared, I am raising my two daughters according to my moral code. To me, the greatest sin of all is failing to be an engaged citizen of the world. So the lessons are about being open to others rather than closed off. We started taking our kids to marches when the younger one was an infant, perched on our shoulders, and the three-year-old danced between the lines of protesters as if it were a block party. We've marched for racial justice and for women's rights. Our church is the street, our congregation, our fellow crusaders. We teach our children to respect the earth by reducing, reusing, and recycling. And it's sinking in. My daughters make me proud by taking their own actions to confront injustice where they see it, by insisting we keep a box of protein bars in the car to hand out to homeless people at stoplights, by participating in school walkouts against gun violence, by intervening when they see kids bullied on the playground, by always questioning the world around them. And she ends the article by uh, talking about the day that one of her children asked her what the meaning of this word sin was. She had seen it on a sign, and she asked her mother, and, and Julia Shears looked down at them, and she realized that my kids already knew what sin was without ever having been exposed to the onerous religious weight of the word. Of the word. Despite being unchurched, they are empathetic, loving, and kind. I gazed into her face and felt a rush of love and happiness. I had raised her without sin. She did have a moral code, one she followed not from obligation, but from her own desire to make the world a better place. I really appreciate this, this essay because I think she articulates so well the experience of many people who have been raised in a religious, religious environment where uh, sin is something to be feared, avoided at all costs. And she teaches her children lots of good morals, right? But is this the solution? Is this what we need to do, just to give up on talking about all those problems of sin and instead just tell our children to be good? Our story today about David is a warning that we can't so easily escape uh, from the shadowed and, and ugly parts of human life. But there is something that we can do. We can speak the truth about them. And that's why I believe this story is in the Bible. It's there to help us to speak the truth about our heroes, 
about ourselves. Because there is no human community that is immune from the problem of sin. In other, every gathering of, of human beings, you will find abuse, violence, prejudice, smug self-righteousness, failure. And the question is, without this notion of sin, can you really understand and navigate the world as it is? With all its beauty, and with all its brokenness. The question uh, we should ask, maybe, is not should we teach our children the, the concept of sin, but how could we not if we want them to have names for the real wrongs that might be done to them or that they might do to others? Ron Rollheiser says, To name something correctly is to partly free ourselves of its dominance. That's why totalitarian regimes fear artists, writers, religious critics, journalists, and prophets. They name things. That's ultimately the function of prophecy. Prophets don't foretell the future. They properly name the present. We're going to talk more about the role of the prophet next week, when we consider how David is confronted by the prophet Nathan uh, for what he has done in the next chapter. But today, I, I just want to close by considering briefly the, what God is already doing in this story and, and how he is present. Uh, the Lord is named only once here. Did you notice? In the final verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. God does have the last word. We've seen earlier in Samuel that David is called you know, the man after God's own heart. But this doesn't at all mean that David is beyond judgment. We saw in chapter 7 that, that God's promise to David and his descendants included correction and discipline uh, when they go astray. And God has a purpose that he is working out here in human history, even in and through this moral failure. In his uh, powerful new memoir, uh, How Far to the Promised Land, uh, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South, uh, the writer Esau McCauley tells a story of a a joy-filled afternoon he spent playing basketball Uh, with a group of older men uh, in his impoverished neighborhood in Huntsville, Alabama. And these these men on the basketball court that day treated him and his friends with uh, kindness. And yet, Macaulay knew uh, that they were drug dealers, uh, responsible for so many wrongs done in his community and for his own father's addiction. And he writes this about it. He says, I had fun that Saturday, but the good time came with a complication. I knew from the pagers and jewelry and the car they had driven up in that these men sold the very drugs that turned my father into a monster. Later, I wondered how they could be kind to us on a Saturday morning and then leave the court to push the drugs that damaged our fathers, mothers, and friends. 
I still do not know how to make sense of that combination of kindness and callousness in the same person. But in truth, the possibility of goodness in those who do evil is not different in principle from the capability of good people to fail us. The possibility of goodness in those who do evil is not different in principle from the capability of good people to fail us. Things you separate intellectually into neat categories are messy in real life. My neighborhood then could be both dangerous and wonderful at the same time. That is why the idea of grace and forgiveness is so important to me. If we're all a mix of good and bad, then there's always the chance that good might emerge victorious in the end if we, got, if we give God enough time to do his work. Patience with broken people and broken things is a manifestation of trust in God. This is where this, the story leaves us in the end. In trusting in God's power to work with the broken things of this world, the broken people, and that somehow, given enough time to do his work, that he might emerge victorious in the end. We're going to talk more next week about the, the shocking mercy of God and how that story begins to unfold. But today we're reminded that, that God is patient with us even while he always names things as they are. The, the Bible confronts us with the reality of our sin, not so that we'll just beat ourselves up over it, but so that we can deal with it. And we enter into true freedom as we live in the light of reality and we confess our sins early and often. In Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer encourages Christians to obey the command of James to confess your sins to one another. And he says this is so important to, to life in community together because real intimacy and relationship will, will be impossible if we just pretend that we're all just pious believers here, that we're all just good people here. If that's the basis of all your relationships, especially in a church community, then you'll just spend all your time hiding from each other, concealing your sins from yourself and, and from others. You'll never really be able to let people in. And so Bonhoeffer says, I'll, and I'm, I'm going to close with this, Many Christians would be unimaginably horrified if a real sinner were suddenly to turn up among the pious. So we remain alone with our sin, trapped in lies and hypocrisy, for we are, in fact, sinners. However, the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to comprehend, confronts us with the truth. It says to us, you are a sinner, a great unholy sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to your God who loves you. For God wants you as you are, not desiring anything from you, a sacrifice, a good deed, but rather desiring you alone. Friends, this is the invitation today. The invitation is to go to him believing that he desires you alone. And he would rather have the real you with all your failure and your brokenness, and your sin, than some fake shining image of 
who we think you know, he wants us to be. Jesus says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so for anyone who's ready to admit their need for grace, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, if uh, we were to stand in this assembly today and to confess uh, our deepest secrets and the wrongs that we have done, uh, we would be ashamed. And yet we know uh, that you know us intimately, uh, far more uh, than we could ever imagine, and uh, that you know the truth. And so we bring ourselves to you today uh, with uh, an open confession of our need for your grace. And we thank you, Lord, for the message of the gospel that you are always moving towards us uh, in your generous and your self-giving and your suffering love, and uh, that you have made it clear in the person and work of Jesus that uh, nothing will ever separate us from you. And so we come to you today with gratitude for your grace and for your love and asking for you to work your power in our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.